I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. He very calmly pushed the Bible in front of me and then tapped on it and showed me the verses that, you know, spoke to women shall have no authority over men in the church. This is the Reverend M. Barclay. And that man tapping on the Bible, that was their youth director. The 17-year-old M had practically burst through the door to tell him that they felt called to be a pastor. And of course I was told, you know, I could be a pastor's wife and I could engage in ministry with children and other women, but that just didn't feel right. And so I felt very torn inside of myself. That moment with the youth director, well, that was just the first of many slaps in the face but that desire to lead wouldn't go away. It just still felt so right that I was called to ministry. It just felt so true. You're listening to Kaleidoscope. We're a new podcast exploring identity, faith, and social engagement in dangerous times. I'm your host, Deborah Jian Lee. All right, I'm going to geek out for a moment. Here's the etymology of the word kaleidoscope. It means observer of beautiful forms. And that's exactly what we're doing on this podcast, finding beauty in messy places. This is who I am, and I'm living into it. On this episode, we're following the path of M. Barclay. They recently made history by becoming the first non-binary trans person commissioned for ordination in the United Methodist Church. If you're not familiar with the term non-binary, first, welcome to 2018. So glad to have you. (laughs) Just kidding. Non-binary gender describes any gender identity that doesn't fit the male-female binary. So there are more than two genders. There are more than two ways to do gender in the world. Anyway, back to M. Their route to ordination, which took 12 years, had so many hurdles along the way. We pick up in 2009, when M is attending seminary in Austin, Texas. Here's our conversation. Welcome, Em. Thank you. It's so great to have you here. It's great to be here. Thanks. So I want to fast forward to 2009. You enrolled at Austin Presbyterian Theological Seminary. You clearly leaned into your call to ministry. And when you started seminary, you identified as a straight woman. Yeah. Right? Yep. And you started reading feminist theology. And can you tell me about what impact that had on you? And if there was a moment when you kind of, when you realized that maybe you weren't a straight woman. Yeah. So one of the most important moments I had in seminary, especially my first year, was being exposed to um, the feminist approach to sin. Changed my life forever. 
Um, so Valerie Savings was a theologian in the 80s, and her big thing was, you know, because theology has been interpreted by men um, forever, uh, it, there's this assumption that um, the the core sin is all rooted in pride, right? And so everything feeds out of we're such prideful beings that we disobey God in all these different ways. But for Valerie Savings, she was like, so many people who are women who are not men, pride is the last problem we have, right? It's the exact opposite of that. It's self-negation that is, in fact, what leads us away from who we truly are. So to approach sin like that transformed my entire understanding of the Christian faith. Um, And I think that was the beginning of being able to hold space within myself for new things. Um, It still took me about two years before I was able to come out as queer. So who did you first come out to? Mm. <laughs> I had been, you know, wondering if I was queer uh, for a while. And my friend Holly and her girlfriend at the time, they're married now, would always like, in the sweetest ways, but always be like, um, you know that you're queer, right? <laughs> you know, I'd be like, you guys don't know what you're talking about. You know, you can't say that. You can't tell me that. You know, you don't know. You don't know. Um, but of course, inside, I would be like, what if they're right? Like, it, I think they might be right. No, I'm not, you know. And so when I, I went to D.C. for an internship and I was like, I'm either going to find out that I'm queer and accept it or I'm going to just feel certain that I'm just a really you know, interested ally. Like, I am committed. <laughs> I am so committed to my queer friends and their well-being, and I am just an ally that is the best ally. So after a little bit of being in D.C., I just, I had this night when I, I don't even remember what made the final shift, but I was like, all right, I'm going to go out, and I'm going to go to a queer bar as a queer person, and I'm just going to try it on and see how it feels, and, you know, Nobody has to know. <laughs> I can go back to Austin, and if it didn't work out, like nobody has to know. You know. Describe the bar to me. What? Oh. <laughs> Take me to the bar. <laughs> <laughs> it was so awkward, but it's this tiny, dark space, uh, and I, I wasn't somebody that went out a lot at that point in my life, and so I didn't know that you're not really supposed to show up until like 11 or 11:30. <laughs> Did you show up at like seven? Well, not that bad, but it was definitely like 9:45 or 10 or something. So you walk into the bar and it's kind of empty. Yeah. So I didn't really know what to do with myself. (laughs) There was a a woman who came and talked to me for a little bit. Um, That was exciting, (laughs) Um, but uneventful. And, uh, you know, I finally asked, like, where is everybody? And the bartender was like, oh, (laughs) you know, (laughs) it's like like 1015, honey. I'm like, what does that mean? You know, (laughs) Um, so I stuck around until later. And then I was told where, like, Everybody goes at 11 on a Saturday or Friday or whatever it was. So I went to this other place, um, and I went there, and I danced, and it was much more like, liberating. <laughs> um, yeah, but that first bar was, was just awkward for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the dancing sounds fun. At the end of the night, did you feel like you had accomplished something? <laughs> yeah, a little bit. I mean, I definitely recognized that I had a lot of growing into it to do, um, but... It felt right being there. It felt like an important step for me. But to to navigate the world for the first time in queer spaces, intentionally recognizing myself as queer was on its own just so pivotal, no matter what happened. 
What was it like at seminary? Did you go back to seminary after this yeah. internship? What happened? Yeah. Oh, it was amazing. <laughs> so my first year of seminary, there was one out lesbian in the whole school. There's like 120 of us, 130 usually. Um, by my senior year, there were about 13 of us who were out, which was like 10% of the school. It went from one student to 10% of the school. So that's a massive shift. Um, and again, I'm the type of person that like once I dive into something, I'm in. And so I ripped that Band-Aid off and I went back to seminary and I was like, I'm here and I'm queer and let me tell you all about it. <laughs> um, and it was such a fun year in that way. I, you know, I was finally getting to, to live into myself, um, at least in that way for the first time. Um, there was this incredible energy on campus among all of these queer students who just came out. And we had this really sweet empowering and encouraging community around being queer because so much of Texas and Austin and our school, you know, wasn't that. I wanted to talk about the your decision to get ordained. Yeah. When did you realize you wanted to pursue that path? So it was before I even went to seminary that, you know, I had started this process. Uh, I think it was 2006 or something that I... I it, um, officially began the ordination process. And so I got a lot of it done before I even went to seminary. And my community was extremely supportive of me. Um, it just seemed like it was going to unfold perfectly. Um, and it would have until I came out as queer in seminary. And so by then, I had seven years of this process behind me. After you came out, yeah. how did the ordination process play out after that? Um, so... I had one more meeting uh, with a small committee before I was sent to the conference-wide board of ordained ministry. Um, and I came out in that district meeting sure that it was all over. I mean, you know, eight, eight years at this point, it was just going to go down the drain. But I had to be true to who I was. I remember very clearly uh, the, the district superintendent at the time, who was not supportive and was much more a rule follower, clarifying, I just need to understand that you're telling us that you are a lesbian in an active relationship with another woman. And I was like, yes. And somebody else said, what do you want us to do? And I said, this is me showing up to the voice of God in my life. It is my faith that has allowed me to come out as queer, and it is my faith that has brought me here. That's all I can do is show up. They uh, said, you know, we, we know what we're doing. Um, we know that we are breaking the rules, uh, but we can't deny that you're called to ministry. I just, I could not believe it. I mean, this was not done in Texas, not done in the South. Um, I mean, I was 100% sure that I was going to be kicked out that day. So that was in April, and I wasn't supposed to meet with the next group until January. Um, but in June, at our annual conference gathering, uh, two days before that, the district superintendent 
contacted me and said, you know, your name is supposed to be going up in front of the clergy session to be passed on to the BOOM, the Board of Ordained Ministry, um, but they have refused to receive your file. And um, that was the only thing I wasn't expecting, which made it really, really painful. I was ready for them to turn me down in January. I'd been ready for them to turn me down in April. Um, but to come out of nowhere, you know, with this, apparently it was such an atrocity that they couldn't even wait until the formal process would allow them to get rid of me by the rules in January. Um, that hurt real bad. Long story short, they changed their mind the next day. They decided to receive my file. And then the day after that, I went to annual conference and they had another meeting and changed their mind again and refused to receive my file, struck me off the list. Um, there was a motion to appeal at the clergy session, which was about 450 clergy in my conference, um, which meant that they had a debate to clarify whether or not there was enough public information to prove that I was having sex. Um, Is that what this whole thing came down to? Yes, yes. In what other field would it be acceptable for 430 people to have a public conversation about whether or not they think you're having sex? I mean, that just sounds like an awful experience. Yes. What was going through your mind at this time? Were you in the room? I was, yeah. I was in the very, very back of the room. What, what did you hear people saying? Um, there was a lot of talk about... Um, my partner and I being in uh, in the public eye. So there was a newspaper that had, you know, covered our relationship. And so there was a lot of talk about like, well, we've read this in the paper about them and they're clearly with this person. I think that's enough uh, evidence to make some assumptions and then somebody else would stand up, and, you know, and advocate for me to say like, well, you can't make assumptions about their behavior just because they're together and, you know, it's kind of, it was three, four, and three against around that kind of debate. Um, and the room uh, did, did a standing vote, um, and there was a difference of five people. Um, and the motion to overturn didn't pass, and so I was removed at that point from the process. Hey, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a minute with the rest of M's story. fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to Kaleidoscope. Let's jump back into our conversation with Em. When that final count was made, what was going through your head? Heartbreak. I mean, heartbreak and, and also how am I the, the, the center of this conversation at an annual conference? I didn't – I thought I was just going to come here to volunteer, <laughs> you know? Um, and how can it be that the church not only is discriminating – but is so committed to discrimination that it won't even follow the rules to discriminate legally. You know, <laughs> um, I was just having to really let all of that settle. And I had I was in a place where I was um, just heartbroken. Yeah. So I wanted to shift gears a little. Um, when did you begin to understand your gender identity more fully? Uh, when I was still in Texas, um, I started to uh, read memoirs and books by trans people because, again, I just wanted to be a good ally. <laughs> um, and to be honest, the the real uh, shift for me was when um, I was reading, there's a book called Whipping Girl um, by a trans woman, but she was trying to describe gender dysphoria that led to her need for medical intervention. So I read her story and realized, like, I need top surgery. I, I need that. This is speaking to a thing that I didn't have language for before. And so, again, I was just led to do a lot more reading and a lot more exploring. Uh, and I was also really engaged in Twitter at the time. And uh, it was Twitter that um, exposed to me other non-binary people. Uh, and that was not a term I'd ever heard of. It certainly had not made its way to Texas. <laughs> And so how did it feel when you discovered the language? Great and terrifying and awful. I mean, it really was all the things. Uh, very different than my sexual orientation. Felt so liberative once I was able to accept it. But being non-binary just felt so difficult. Um, and so there's definitely a, a sort of uh, freedom and, and being able to put words to experiences by all means. Um, and if only I could keep that to myself and be satisfied, then like that would have been great. But um, there's this whole world that I had to brush up against that says this language is false. And so to sort of own the truth of a word that you know the world is going to say is untrue is a hard moment, right? You got married in 2013, mm -hmm. is that right? Yeah. And in 2014, you and your spouse moved to Chicago. You start working for Reconciling Ministries. And you've said before that in this space, you felt comfortable coming out as non-binary. How did this impact your relationship? Yeah, uh, it was it was hard. Yeah. Um, my uh, wife was uh, very committed to um, my doing whatever I needed to do for my well-being, you know, no question. Um, and we were, you know, newly married couple, and this is a really big shift. Um, 
And there was a lot of, of struggle of, of trying to hold, I think both of us were trying to hold wanting the best for the other person um, with knowing we have, we have our own needs too. Um, and I think in a lot of relationships where somebody comes out as trans, um, it's just not possible for all of those things to remain at once. Um, because for me, I was finally recognizing like, I need surgery. Like, this isn't just something that I want. This is, I have to have this. And so I was very much in this, in, in the midst of that. Um, and I think that, uh, my wife absolutely wanted to, um, support me in that, um, but also struggled with what that meant for her. Eventually, you guys end up getting a divorce, right? Yeah. yeah. How, how, when was that? Um, that was, uh, well, we split up in January of 2016. Okay. Yeah. Um, and it, it wouldn't be true to say that, you know, it was, it's as simple as saying I came out and we got a divorce. I mean, that wouldn't be true. It is really hard and, um, it's hard on top of other things that are hard too. So. Right. Yeah. How do you pick yourself up after that? Well, I think the big thing, more than anything, was um, to have people in my life who were, one, could understand all the different layers was vital. Um, so to have other queer people who could understand. Um, and to have people who could hold all of that complexity with me and speak back to the lies that, you know, would be really easy to internalize. I mean, I don't feel like I failed at marriage, right? I healthily discerned that um, given many, many different layers uh, in our lives, this was the right and whole and loving thing to do, um, which is not how our <laughs> society, you know, teaches relationships should unfold. Um, but I felt very good about discerning a shift in relationship um, and to have friends that could reinforce that with me was enough to keep me um, sort of grounded. Let's fast forward to 2017. It feels like so much turns around here. Yeah. You're in Chicago, you're still pursuing your calling, and then a local board approves your candidacy for clergy. And you make history, and you're commissioned as deacon. What was that ceremony like? Gosh, I was nervous up until the moment the bishop put her hands on me that somebody was going to come running into the room, you know, yelling or something. Like, this can't actually be happening. Um, so it was I, was, I was very, you know, sort of tense, just like, this can't be real. And I think I was um, somewhat disassociated. Uh, I felt like after that service, there was a sort of defrosting that had to take place within me because for so many years, I had to detach myself to some degree um, from how much I felt called to do this. Uh, because you can't stay intimately present to that call and be told no, or you're not made for this, or probably won't happen. You can't, you know, navigate both of those things fully for 12 years. It wasn't until it was actually true that I finally was able to go, oh my God, I really, like, I really wanted this because it's so important to me. Um, 
so it, the service was the beginning sort of of really getting to feel how much this meant to me. And your commissioning made national headlines. What kind of responses did you receive? Did you hear from any trans Christians about the impact this had on their lives? Yeah, yeah. It, oh gosh, it meant the world to me. Um, there were, oh, yeah, a ton of people <laughs> who reached out. And I think the ones that meant the most to me were, you know, folks who would say, for the first time, I'm seeing somebody like me in a position of, of faith leadership. Or for the first time in my life, I actually believe that I might be able to live into my call. And for me to see other people in leadership um, or just celebrating who they are was so pivotal in my own development to imagine that like I could be a part of other people's development in that way that hopefully helps them love themselves a little better is gosh, enough to do this all over again. You know what I mean? Like, that's what it's about. That's why we need queer and trans people in ministry and in faith life is because other people need to see it. Reverend M. Barclay, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. appreciate it. So this is the part of the show where we bring on Kaleidoscope's pastor in residence, Aaron James Brown. Erin is a pastor at Urban Village Church in Chicago, and she's a co-founder of Kaleidoscope. I'm glad to be here. So we just had this amazing interview with M. Barclay, and I wanted to talk to you, you know, as a pastor, when you hear the story, what, what do you want listeners to take away? I think the most important part of M's story was talking about going out to the gay bar for the first time when they mentioned going out in this way as maybe a baby version of themselves, but a true full expression of who they are, that that was so important and that there was no going back after that, that once you become fully alive, you can't change who you are. So that if you're keeping a secret about your gender identity or your sexuality, it's important to find safe people or families or communities that you can trust to share this with, but then also go out into the world as who you really are and allow yourself to be free to share that with others because the world needs to experience you, but you also need to share who you truly are with the world in order to live your best life. The thing I really appreciated about M was just how honest they were about the process of discovering who you truly are and the fact that it can be really awkward or uncomfortable or you can make mistakes. I think it's easy to see someone like M and be like, oh, you were just kind of like born this like cool badass yeah (laughs) like and like that's just who you've been your whole life it was kind of nice to know that M showed up to a bar way too early because we've all kind of been there right like trying to like feel out this new environment and trying to fit in and realizing like I don't actually know the rules or I don't really know where to go or how to be and you kind of you can learn that along the way you find people you find your tribe to kind of help you um figure out who you are in that space and how to navigate it. And that's okay. That's just part of growing into yourself. Yeah. But it takes that first step of like Mm -hmm. showing up and doing the thing about texting your friend, getting like your your hype girls or boys (laughs) or people behind you to say, yeah, you can do this. And then there's the other thing I learned from M's story is the practice of persistence, 
then to continually show up as who mm-hmm. you are, despite yeah. the discrimination you might experience or uh, how people might treat you, but to continue to remain true to who you are and yourself and to explore that and then give yourself the grace to still keep trying and be awkward and figure it out is really important. Mm-hmm. If you are hearing this and you feel compelled to take that first step, um, let us know how it goes. You can email us. You can hit us up on social media. So, Aaron, thank you so much for this amazing, inspiring advice. I That's all I have to give is amazing, <laughs> inspiring advice. Awesome. So do you think you'll want to come back and do this again? I'll pray about it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. See you next episode. (laughs) See you then. Thanks so much for listening to Kaleidoscope. On our next episode, I'll be sharing my conversation with Ibu Patel. He's an interfaith leader and former faith advisor to Barack Obama. We'll be talking about the challenges of promoting religious tolerance in Trump's America. I'm walking my older son, Zaid, up Lincoln Avenue, and we're checking out the posters there. And there they are, this band of of Muslim roots musicians dressed in their Bedouin outfits, you know, robes and headscarves. And my son's instinctive words were, Dad, that's ISIS. That's it for our very first show. Kaleidoscope is produced by Dennis Funk with amazing support by co-founder Aaron James Brown. I'm your host, Deborah Jian Lee. You can find out more about the show at kscopepod.com. Our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram is at kscopepod. Thanks to the BTS Center for funding season one. If you're into the show and you want to hear more in the future, please consider supporting us. Our Patreon account is kscopepod. Or use the Radio Public app, where we get some coins for each listen. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps, too. All right. I'll see you next episode. In the meantime, let the world see you. When they do, they'll never be the same. Would you like any gummy bears or trail mix? Oh, no. Oh, we have champagne. (laughs) Champagne! Because this is your first. This is our first. Yeah, we're going to celebrate. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.